So the Christian faith has rightly been called a shoe leather faith. It's a faith that begins with the mind. You first come to know Jesus Christ through your ears and you process the message of the gospel and you make a volitional decision. Do I choose to accept this as fact or fiction? But the the faith must not just rest solely in the mind. It must then migrate down to the heart, uh, the affection center, the center that tells us whether or not we will truly love God, that we will truly give him our lives and follow him in that way. But then, once you have given God your heart, radical transformation takes place, and the faith migrates then down to your feet. Faith starts to touch the ground. We begin to walk his way in the way that God has called us to. Did you know that a faith that does not walk is a suspect faith? It's a faith in name only. It's more of an affinity than it is a core conviction that radically changes us. Faith must walk. And the only way we know how to walk in this world is to walk his way. Now, as we've uh, been continuing in this study, you remember that we opened up the first part of chapter 4 on this topic of sanctification. Paul is continuing to walk us through the realm of the practical with regard to our conduct for Christ. Christianity, if anything, is a practical faith. It's a faith that touches into every aspect of our life and even into the mundane things like how I drive, and uh, many of you are experiencing this right now, how you prepare your taxes, how you go to the grocery store. Christianity has to do with all of these things. It's not just something that's ethereal and removed from my real world. It is earthy. It's something that I put into practice, that I do. This is why last week Paul asked a rather sensitive question. How is your sex life? He got right into the thick of it. Should knowing Jesus change our sex life? And we saw that the answer to that question was yes. This week he's going to ask us a different question. He's going to ask, how is your love life? Now I'm not talking here about romantic love. I am talking about the love for the body of Christ, the church that we have, and the love for those who don't know Jesus, the world. Should knowing Jesus change the way you love? Does it? Well, Paul will talk to us about that. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. Um, If you're not there with us, you can open the blue Bible in the chair in front of you to page 987, and you'll find our text, and we'll read together. Paul says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So notice there, two aspects of love. Love the family, love 
the world. And we're going to begin with loving the family his way. Paul begins by talking about brotherly love. Uh, This comes from the Greek word Philadelphia, which we're familiar with the city, Philadelphia, which means the city of brotherly love. That's right. You guys are so smart. Now, brotherly love in this context dealt with familial love, the love that I extended uh, to my family, people who shared my genetic DNA, etc. But it never seemed to migrate outside of that family union. So it's interesting that here, Paul applies this term to the body of Christ. It's a type of love that's not based on nationality, physical descent, or yes, even likability. Isn't that hard? We love because we are a part of the family of God. God is our Father. We have been redeemed to the Father through the work of the Son. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption. When we received the Holy Spirit, when we trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ, we became a part of the family of God. And get this, spirit is thicker than blood. Now, recently I read an article in Christianity Today entitled, The Local Church is More Awkward Than Your Facebook Wall. Hmm. Written by Richard Clark, the premise of the article is that Christians are tempted to exchange real community, the community of physically being present in the local church, for certain alternative community settings that are just much less awkward. Clark writes this, maybe the most prominent and seductive modern-day myth is the assumption that we have an unlimited amount of attention, and that means attention from others. Twitter, hashtags, shareable content, and Facebook groups uh, with a feeling of exclusivity create the illusion of infinite belonging. These communities are self-selected, usually based on clearly spelled out shared values or affinities, and they make it easy for one to opt in and opt out. Now, here's the big question. What do you call someone with 700 Facebook friends and no friends that they physically ever interact with? Friendless. Really, right? Lonely or isolated. But you might be saying, but 150 people liked my post the other day. Doesn't that mean that I have friends? No. No, real community, faith community, requires effort and risk. Effort because I must be physically present to engage in community. Risk because when I am engaging in community, I am entrusting myself to another person. Which also means that when you are engaging in real community, you'll know it. Because there will be times that you will be hurt. Because real relationships operate like that. What do you give up when you're only willing to enter into a wound-free, commitment-free zone where everyone thinks like you do? You give up family. Family goes through tough times. Family doesn't always get along. Everyone in this room get along with everyone in their family. But family sticks together. Family works through its differences. So being a family in the body of Christ is hard. But God has given us an adhesive that 
bonds us together so that we can make this thing work. That adhesive is love. One author has said this, love ultimately wins the day no matter how long it takes. Love overcomes the whole gamut of problems. Love goes beyond the jarring clash of personality and culture. Love gladly accepts the other person for who and what they are. Love always finds a way through their maze of complex issues. And so as we cling to love, the scriptures say time and time again that this family thing will work. And if we don't cling to love, well, we've all seen what happens when we go down that pathway. Notice three facts about this love. The first is that it is taught by God. He says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Warren Wearsby shares these words, have you noticed that animals do instinctively what is necessary to keep them alive and safe? Fish do not attend classes to learn how to swim. Birds, by nature, put out their wings and they flap in order to fly. It is nature that determines action because a fish has a fish's nature, it swims, and because a hawk has a hawk's nature, it flies, and because a Christian has God's nature, he or she loves because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. How did God teach us to love? Well, God the Father taught us to love by sending his one-of-a-kind son. John three sixteen. Jesus showed us how to love because he laid down his life for us. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, he says, I lay down my life for my friends. The Holy Spirit is the power to love. The Spirit of God pours love into our hearts so that we love like God. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And what kind of love are we talking about? We're talking about agape. Uh, When the Bible describes love, this is the type of love that God loves us with. It's not an earned love. It's a love that's choosing to love. It's unconditional. It has nothing to do with what you did to earn it. Everything to do with God's choice and everything to do with the price that God was willing to pay in order to love you. That's agape. So our capacity to love others does not come by trying harder. It comes by yielding to that spirit who pours out the love of God into our hearts. Now, the more that you walk his way, the more that you grow to be obedient to the spirit, you start looking like the family. Every family has certain traits, don't they? It might be curly hair. It might be a certain distinctive facial feature or a quality to their smile or a sarcasm that they share. Our distinctive and most distinguishable trait is love. John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
So when we love as the church, we're reflecting the character of God to not only ourselves, but we're reflecting the character of God to the world. So it's so important that the church of Jesus Christ would be a loving environment. In fact, if you look statistically at what brings people into church, it has not much to do with programs or quality or those types of things. It has to do with relationships and care. People want to be loved. I love how Paul says here to the Thessalonians, this is indeed what you are doing. Isn't that awesome? Not only is he teaching this church about love, but the church is putting love into practice. And I can't help but feel the same way about this place. I mean that. I was thinking of where we've been for the last couple of years, and I gotta tell you, Putting this sermon together has been one of the more difficult sermons that I've written in a long time just because I had to sift through the, the fog of two years of what we've been through as a church. It's been pretty tough situation after tough situation, right? I can't help but think of uh, friends like Rosemary, who lost Dick, Margot, who lost Jack, and now as I just read to you, our dear little friend Isaac Schrager struggling with leukemia. And each time that, that God has presented a new challenge to us to love, this church has risen to the occasion. You have literally poured out love on people. And it's been an amazing thing to watch. And I just, the only thing that I have to say with regard to that is just keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Love people. Love people. Love people. And as you do that, God will be glorified. That was a side note. Um, I think of those who are actually in the throes of suffering. Um, You guys have no idea how much you are showing Jesus to us by being faithful in the midst of that. I was uh, texting with Sarah Schrager on Friday and she told me that one of our members had contacted her and thanked her for standing firm in Jesus through this trial with Isaac. And she had said that the strength that Sarah and Mark and family extended were showing had encouraged her in her faith. And then Sarah sends me this, the text that she responded to this friend She said, I had always hoped that I would be able to stand firm on God if something awful were to ever happen. And now that it has, I am so glad I know the Lord. I know he can handle my anger and rage that is happening, um, that this is happening to my baby as well as my sorrow. Funny thing is, Rosemary Service and Margot Mack were my inspiration watching them and how they responded while enduring the unimaginable encourages me to do the same. That's why Facebook won't cut it, y'all. It just is not going to cut it. We need to be physically present, fully invested in the local church. And my response to Sarah was this. She is not the only one you have helped many have seen Jesus in you and Mark and in your mom and dad. Thank you. Let's continue to encourage them in that way. Uh, They are fighting the good fight and they are being faithful. 
Let's notice something else about love. Love is not just taught by God, but it also extends to the entire family of God. He says in verse 10, this is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So it's not just to do with their local church, it's to do with God's church. It's very important to the heart of God that we would love God's church. I've been all over the world, well, I don't want to say all over, I've been to three places. I guess that's not all over the world. (laughs) Trying to make it sound like a bigger deal, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) I've been to three places. Uh, I have been to Slovakia. I have been to India, and I've been to Togo, West Africa. And, you know, kind of Indiana Jones-esque sort of settings. Not at all. Um... And while I've been there, I have marveled over the way that people from other cultures, even people who I don't share the same language with, have embraced me as their family. I would go and have dinners with Christians, and they would feed me at great cost to themselves, sometimes up to and including one week's worth of wages. They didn't even know me. But they knew that I was a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they extended that kind of love to us. Now, why is it that I can laugh with someone I can barely communicate with and feel affection for them? Because Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, Christ is in all. We share something deeper than race or language or views on politics or tradition. Christ is in all. Now sadly, we often have an easy, we find it easier to love the person across the ocean than we do the church down the road. We really do. Um, let me just say this. We are not in a competition. We are not in a competition. We're all sharing the same vision, right? To bring glory to Jesus and to reach a lost and dying world with the gospel. And so if the church down the street is filling up faster than we are, it might have something to do with their actively engaged in reaching people. And maybe we're not. We're not in competition. One pastor has said this, One of the true tests of our love for others is our ability to rejoice when God chooses to bless others more than he blesses us. We're not only to love our church, we are to love God's church. A third note on love, it never stops growing. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Keep loving. Keep getting better at it. Do you know love's not a to-do list item that you just check off? My, my wife, Katie, loves to-do lists. I want nothing to do with to-do lists, you know? Things just happen. We're just in the moment, and you, you check that box off when inspiration strikes. But Katie lists everything out, and she just checks the boxes. Now, what would it be like if 
Katie came into the living room and she gave me a passionate kiss and I'm just totally taken aback. Like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. That was wonderful. Thank you, dear. And then after she kisses me, she turns around and says, well, now that I've gotten that done, I can go on to the other things on the list that I wanted to accomplish, like cleaning the toilet. Ooh. Love is a continuous action. It is not a task we complete. It's an ongoing activity. Eugene Peterson captures the idea in the message paraphrase. Regarding life together and getting along with each other, you don't need me to tell you what to do. You're God taught in these matters. Just love one another. I love that. You're already good at it. Your friends all over the providence of Macedonia are the evidence. Keep it up. Get better and better at it. And the love continues to grow and grow and grow so that it moves outside of these walls and it starts impacting the world. Notice in verses 11 and 12, Paul now is going to move to say love the world his way. He says, love more and more to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we have instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Chuck Swindoll has rightly observed that many Christians teeter on the edge of extremes. We seem to live in this continual tug of war between either and or, instead of finding that sweet spot in life of both and. Now, I just want to make you aware that Satan is a master of half-truth. He loves half of the truth. He loves when you grab hold of half of the truth and you make it the whole truth. Loves it. One either-or that we struggle with has to do with the way that we interact with the world. You see, we're either so inward-focused and exclusive that our whole world revolves around Christians, or we become like camouflage Christians where we walk through the world and we have so adopted the pursuits, habits, and priorities of the world that people wouldn't even be able to identify us as a Christian. Paul says, find balance. Love the church Love the world. Be both. Why did the Thessalonians need to hear this? Well, if you've been following along, you'll know that Paul had been teaching them about the Lord's return. And one thing that he taught them about the Lord's return is that Jesus was coming back imminently. That word imminent means that it could happen at any moment. It means that Jesus could return right now, five minutes from now, tomorrow, a week from now a month from now, two years from now. Guess what? We don't know. But the temptation was to simply give up on their everyday, ordinary life and wait. It's likely that people stopped working, that they became so hysterical about the Lord's return that they became off-putting to those who had never heard about Jesus 
equating jobs, doing all those types of things. Now, I remember um, it was 2011, May 21st, when the world was supposed to end, right? Predicted by Harold Camping. People sold everything, quit jobs, waited. But here's the problem. It's difficult to love the world if you check out on the world. You can't love people if you're not willing to engage with them. In fact, Jesus doesn't want you to wait for him and do nothing while you are waiting. He wants quite the opposite. He doesn't want to come here and find you sitting on your hands. He wants to find you actively engaged in the work of the ministry. Now, Christianity is a shoe-leather faith. It's very practical. So these phrases that Paul uses to instruct us on how to love the world are practical. I love it. He begins by talking about living quietly. To live quietly means to live a, a life free from disruption or commotion. Eugene Peterson would translate this term, stay calm. We need a little bit of that in this world, don't we? A little bit of calm. Because our temptation is to run around like chickens with our heads cut off. To be so active and busy and so hardworking, and yet we're not actually accomplishing much of anything. Stress, anxiety, fear, all of these things are very much part and parcel of how we're living today. One poem puts it this way. This is the age of the half-read page and the quick bash and the mad dash, the bright night and the nerves tight. The plane hop with a brief stop, the lamp tan in a short span, the big shot in a good spot, and the brain strain, and the heart pain, and the caps nap until the spring snaps, and the fun's done. That does not sound like the peace and calm that comes with knowing Jesus or having the spirit of peace in your life. One author has said this, the underlying foundation of all of our evangelism is the credibility of our living. We live in an agitated, upset, disoriented, messed up world, so why would agitated, upset, disoriented Christians reach people? Mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs means mind your own business. I think we all need to hear something that stings a little bit this morning. Many people have a picture in their mind of a typical church. And let me just tell you, it's not a room full of changed lives changing lives. It is a room full of uh, a group of self-righteous, nosy people who have nothing better to do than sit around and talk about what everyone else is doing. Ouch. Ouch. If you are actively involved in gossip, it's unlikely that you are actively involved in real ministry. Mm -hmm. Paul says you have too much time on your hands. You need to plug into something where you are productively reaching people for Christ. I found this quote helpful as I was studying. The next time that a juicy morsel comes across your pathway, feel free to have no opinion on that. 
feel free to have no opinion on the way someone's raising their children. (laughs) Feel free to have no opinion on how their house looks when you come over and they've invited you in with hospitality. Feel free to have no opinion on how people who don't know Jesus are living like people who don't know Jesus. Feel free to have no opinion on that. He also talks about working hard to reach people. Now, the Thessalonians uh, seem to struggle with idleness because of the expectation of Jesus' return. In fact, they're still struggling with it in the second letter to the Thessalonians, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is why Paul says to them, work with your hands. This is a shoe leather faith that goes with you where you go. It doesn't stay here on Sunday morning. It moves to nine to five, Monday through Friday, or whatever crazy hours you're working. Now, I believe that many of you want to represent Jesus well. I really do. I believe that because I know you. I believe that you want to go into your work world and to be an instrumental force for Jesus in people's lives. So how do we do this? I think there's three approaches that people tend to take when it comes to sharing Jesus at work. Some go to work and they work hard and they hope that Jesus will, or people will see Jesus in their life, but they never come out and actually identify themselves as a Christian. They never talk about Jesus. We've talked about this before. In order to reach someone for Christ, you must show and tell. So that just doesn't quite cut it. There's other people who make a public spectacle of their faith at work. I read about a woman named Edna who took a job with an engineering firm, and she desperately wanted to reach people for Jesus, but went about it all the wrong way. She had a Christmas party and they had approved it at the office. She invited her pastor to come to the party. He comes in with this speaker and uh, speaker attached to his hip and microphone in his hand and starts loudly singing and proclaiming the gospel. And workers complained because they couldn't concentrate. And when she was reprimanded for her actions, she took the, uh, from moving on to that to distributing gospel literature all over the office. And then she was reprimanded for that, and so she decided that she was just going to start emailing verses at people in work until Edna finally got fired. And she was fired on the grounds of uh, using company time for non-work purposes. She meant well, but she ended up losing whatever opportunity she had to share Jesus if she would have just simply done her job. Thirdly, Some people tell people that they follow Jesus and then they back it up by the quality of their work. I think of this um, when Paul's talking about this. He wants Christians to be the most respected workers. Tell people that you know Jesus. I think that's very important. I think it's important to do it almost immediately when you come into a workplace environment. I follow Christ and then back it up with what you do on the job. 
My dad used to pound that concept in my head when I was first working. He said to me, Rob, if you want people to become interested in Jesus at your workplace, you need to work hard. You need to show them the quality of a Christian's work ethic. So this led me then to start practicing this habit when I would go into the workplace. And before I entered into ministry, uh, I worked multiple jobs, and my normal approach would be to let people know that I was a Christian, then as I worked with them, to work respectfully towards them and to work hard, as hard as I could. And amazingly, even though I never aggressively evangelized these places, I had spiritual conversations all the time. All the time. I've, I've had managers come to work, uh, to church with me, uh, Co-workers, customers would talk to me about Jesus. And you know what? I only received one complaint for sharing my faith out of all those times that I had worked jobs. It was back when I was working for UPS. I was doing a 3.30 to 8.30 in the morning shift, which let me just tell you, if you've never gotten up for a 3.30 shift, you are missing out on life. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. You love coffee. A guy asked me to come in and to help him load, and I said, sure, I'll help you load the truck, and we started talking, and as was my natural habit, I would steer the conversation into faith in some way or another, and he got angry. And he called the manager into the truck, and he wanted me reprimanded right then and there. My manager looked at my coworker and then he looked at me and he said, you know, Jason, he can tell you about Jesus anytime he wants because he works twice as hard as you do. <laughs> and let me just say this, my manager was not a Christian, okay? Uh, one weekend, or one Monday, I asked him how his weekend went and let's just say I've never asked him, never would ask him how his weekend went again after that. <laughs> TMI, buddy. Why do we do this, verse 12? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Why do we lead a quiet life? Why do you mind your own business? Why do you work with your hands? Why do you love the church? Your reputation matters. Your reputation matters. You love people by representing Jesus Christ well. And it's very tangible, isn't it? It's real. It's practical. C.S. Lewis has said this, we may talk so much about loving people in general that we love no one in particular. And that just won't do in the Christian faith. We are to walk his way. How did Jesus lead? He led with his feet on the ground, didn't he? He was in and amongst the people, loving them. And Christianity is a shoe-leather faith. It's a faith that migrates from the head to the heart to the feet. You love the church. You love the world in real, practical, tangible ways while you're waiting. Let's pray.